Welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this podcast I speak to politicians, opinion formers and business leaders to find out about the experiences, people and places that have inspired them. The 2019 election saw a big shape-up in Parliament with many new MPs and in this episode I speak to one of them, Anthony Magnall, who is the Conservative MP for Totnes. We discuss why he decided to take a stand against Huawei so early on in his parliamentary career, what it's like spending Saturday mornings on sea with the local fishermen, and the lessons he learnt whilst working for William Hague. He's certainly one to follow closely. This is one of the episodes supported by One, which is a global movement campaigning to end extreme poverty and preventable disease so that everyone everywhere can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. As the world grapples with the global pandemic, the One World campaign urges world leaders to ensure a truly global response and ensure that as vaccines become available, they are distributed as widely as possible, prioritising those that need it most, regardless of nationality or wealth. It's about ensuring vaccine equity. Only global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines will beat the virus, enabling us to end the pandemic faster for everyone, saving lives everywhere and helping economies recover. And that is why One has launched the Vaccine Access Test, which scores governments and pharmaceuticals against the steps they need to take to ensure fair, efficient and comprehensive access to vaccines and guard against what they call vaccine nationalism. No country or institution can do this alone. We're not competing with each other, we're competing against the virus. Because none of us are safe until all of us are safe. To find out more about their campaign, visit one.org. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. Anthony, you are the first 2019 intake MP to appear on What Were You Thinking? And that is quite an election year to be part of. Tell me a bit more about the class of 2019. Well, uh, Laura, thank you very much for having me on. I can only say if I'm the first of the 2019 intake, it's only going to get better from here. Uh, It's a remarkable group of people. And, you know, I'm very privileged to be able to sit on the green benches with so many people from so many different backgrounds who have done such an extraordinary array of things, from people who are serving soldiers to people who have worked in power stations to, you know, to journalists. It's really kind of an extraordinary group of people. And what is also nice is that there's quite a large contingent of us who are a similar age group um, who are really using technology at the forefront to be able to connect with our communities, to be able to help people through this difficult time. So while it is incredibly difficult for us to be able to operate in Westminster under the current guidelines um, and the restrictions of how many people you can have in the chamber, it's been amazing to interact with 107 new MPs who are all as enthusiastic and energetic as I am about making sure that they can deliver for their communities across um, across their respective constituencies, but also for the country as a whole. Mm. And and you're you're the just for the listeners. You are the MP for Totnes, and um, interestingly, under you know, understandably, just because of a shift in seats allocations from Labour to the Conservatives, there's a huge amount of focus on the red wall seats and and the MPs who have been elected there. But equally, there's lots of new MPs in the southwest, such as yourself. How do you feel about so much attention being given to that area? 
Well, naturally, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable because I think, you know, I understand that we have made a promise to those seats that we won in the 2019 election. But it's also important that we maintain our promises and commitments to those seats that we have held for a long time. Um, and I always sort of talk in, in my sort of constituency articles and, and radio interviews I do down here about the need to deliver for the Southwest, the need for us to see our fair share. And I think the government's probably got it right. They probably got it right to talk about a levelling up agenda. But it's not just a levelling up agenda in the red wall seats. It's a levelling up agenda in every region of the United Kingdom. And it's really important that we as MPs in the Southwest and the Southeast and the South and, and those outside of the seats that we, we, we haven't won, in, won before maintain that commitment to be able to deliver in those areas. And I think it's been challenging because so much of the media narrative is around these red wall seats and people and my constituents especially always talk to me why is there all this attention on the on the red wall seats what about us what about our poor digital infrastructure or transport infrastructure and we need to really make sure that we're actually allowing people to understand that there is uh, the drive and determination in their elected representatives to deliver for all areas of the UK not just one specific area mm, yeah that makes sense i can see why that that would be a, con- a concern and and um a priority for but you. It's, and, and... There, there is an added bit to this as well. It's, you know, if, if you spend routinely year after year promising that you're going to deliver for certain areas and you don't, then you can't be surprised by how the electorate responds at the end of this. And, you know, I think that was something that came up again and again in 2019 is, you know, we've heard about the major infrastructure projects that have been promised. We've heard about things like duelling the 303 or completing the Dawlish line, all of this stuff. But why is it taking so long? And why is it other areas seem to get so much more than us? And so you can see that people really want to see that change sooner rather than later. And if 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 we don't deliver on that, then that's something we're going to have to face in uh, in coming years at coming elections. Yeah. So, Anthony, let's find out a bit more about you and your thinking and politics. Um, as you know, because you've, you know, I pre-warned you, as I do of all my guests, you know, I like asking these three tough questions, sort of, you know, about the place and people and uh, objects that have inspired your thinking. So let's start off with um, a place. You know, is there is there a place that you've visited or I don't know heard about that you think has has really impacted you? Well, I'm I'm pretty lucky. I've I'm, I've travelled a lot in my life, and and partly due to my father being in the army and serving something like forty five years in the army, we moved to Northern Ireland and we moved across the UK, and, and we ended up in in Zimbabwe as well at a pretty formative time in my life. I was about seven. And I remember turning up and this was sort of almost at the point of Robert Mugabe's sort of, you know, zenith of his power. He was right at the top of where he felt he should be. Um, and it was an extraordinary informative time in my life. You're, I was age seven, got into this sort of, you know, this new world. And um, it was quite extraordinary to see the changes that were going on in such quick order in front of me, you know, from hyperinflation. You know, I think the first September that I went to Zimbabwe to see my parents they were it was $30 to the pound and by the time I left it was 300 and of course we all then remember seeing those images of billion dollar notes being printed out in Zimbabwe's hyper hyperinflation just completely took hold um mm-hmm. that was a pretty informative time in my life and certainly made me sort of start questioning who was who were the people in charge who was governing what was going on why weren't people able to get jobs why wasn't there food on the supermarket shelves and you know, it's a it's a sad reality that very little has changed in Zimbabwe, even now, even with a new leader. 
Um, and so that definitely had from an early on stage in my life a real impact and sort of made me start sort of inquiring about you know how decisions were made and I'm pretty lucky in that respect but because you've asked such a sort of it's such a good question but such a difficult one to answer with only one place the other one has also got to be Singapore I mean I spent um, I spent a bit of time working for William Hague after university um, and after two years working for him, I thought I've got to go and get a proper job. In fact, I think my mum told me I had to go and get a proper job. Um, and, you know, no one ever disagrees with their mother. I still don't. Exactly. And exactly. And so I, I flew to Singapore on a one way ticket to find a job. Um, and I'd spent six months preparing to interview with a whole load of different companies from, you know, advertising groups to PR companies to shipbreaking firms to banks and all of this side of things. And I ended up in a in a job in shipping and where I was sort of chartering in and out um, big, big vessels, really. And that was an extraordinary experience in my life because I went out, you know, one way ticket, didn't know when I was coming back and really saw how a successful city state can operate, how uh, businesses can have a huge benefit on the societies in which they exist. And and the really the, the way in which the world moves and operates through international trade. And that was quite a nice sort of counter experience to the early years of my life in Zimbabwe versus you know the start of my professional career in shipping. Mm. That's that's really interesting and I, I didn't know about that um, with, with regards to Singapore about you um, but you know the Zimbabwe element is is also I mean they're both fascinating but Zimbabwe in particular and I couldn't help but wonder just listening to you there whether you reckon that is you know that experience played I mean it must have played a large part in you wanting to become an MP do do you think that's true? Well I I mean I saw things that I'm I saw things then in 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 1997 that that made me sort of again as I say question what was going on around me but also things that I'm now working on so for example you know while we lived there we were going out and seeing elephants and lions and leopards and all of this side of things because you know that was on the doorstep and now you know 20 years on I'm working to help close the domestic trade of ivory or that's something I did a a few years ago while working for, for for Hagen for a whole group of other people you know this is stuff that you you took for granted at the time and then found yourself being able to actually have a hand in to protect and conserve. And so, yeah, I think it definitely shaped me in terms of my sort of vehement opposition to uh, to, to what socialism is at its very core, which is an extremely dangerous ideology that I don't believe delivers for people, in fact, puts them in an opposite direction. Of course, Zimbabwe is a very extreme example, but it it gave me definitely an early sort of taste of something that I didn't like. Yeah. And um, what about an individual or a person? Uh, you see, this is, and I've already mentioned it once, but actually, I mean, I was I was aged 18 and I decided to take a gap year, which, of course, so many people are, are doing this this year and, you know, some by choice and others because they've had their university place deferred. So I, I wrote to William Hague and um, said, can I come and work for you? And this is in 2008, I think. And he was shadow foreign secretary at the time. And I turned up and I was interviewed by him. And then I was interviewed by his two special advisors. One is called Chloe Dalton and the other is called Arminka Helich, who's, um, and she's now in the House of Lords. And really, actually, it's got to probably be three people. I mean, I'm still incredibly close to William and he's, you know, has been a constant friend and, and an advisor of to how to get things done and, and, and what to look at in terms of in politics. But um, I love he, how you, when you said advisor, you, in my, you sounded very much like William Hague. But that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, 
I feel I, I, lots of people have said this. I'm not sure it's true. I, I think sometimes I go into the like Hagisms because if you spend so long working with someone, you sort of can fall into their speech patterns, which is a really bad thing. But I think, I but it's also I think it gives me time to think. <laughs> um, but you, you know that was that was it was an amazing experience working for the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and but he introduced me to these two remarkable women who are still very much part of my life, and they were working on really interesting things, and it was about the UK's role in foreign policy. And obviously that took hold in 2010 when the Conservatives uh, formed the coalition government. And it was really interesting to have that opportunity, but also, you know, their experiences and their insight and just their brilliance. So, you know, Chloe and Arminka were looking at doing things in a way that I don't think other people have ever, ever considered. And one of the examples of that was the creation of the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict initiative that they helped uh, set up with William Hague and Angelina Jolie as the as the, as the as the sort of the leaders of it um but it's just an extraordinary initiative that the UK should be incredibly proud about because we are trying to end the idea that people can escape justice from committing rape in conflict and in crisis zones around the world and we've got hundreds of we I think it's 146 countries have signed up to the UN's UK's resolution in the UN to to end this injustice and to shatter the culture of impunity. So, I mean, those three people, that, that triumvirate of individuals has had a massive impact on my life. I always say that Arminka took a, basically a, a probably a rather entitled public schoolboy and brought me down about 20 levels and then tried to, and then reconstructed me as someone who was hardworking or who is hardworking um and hopefully kind and compassionate and she was yeah she's she's been a massive part of my life amazing yeah no i've i have come across her and she is a force an amazing force yeah what a way to start a career it's fantastic but it was off it was off the back of a uh, it was it was off the back of writing to someone a handwritten letter saying you know <laughs> would you be I, I know i'm opening myself up to get lots of letters if anyone actually wants to work with me that is but um you know there is it, there it was and i it just um I, I mean, I loved it. And of course, I then came back to work for William after university for two years. And again, that was during the Arab Spring. So, you know, I'd seen them formulating foreign policy. And then I had seen them implementing that foreign policy at probably one of the most difficult periods of international foreign policy during the Arab Spring. Um, so it was an amazing experience to see, you know, policy cultivation, creation put into practice. Um, and also just to... Um, just to be able to experience that work ethic and the way in which they operate. I mean, William Hague is, I think it's, you know, not controversial to say he's, you know, very well regarded as a, as a former foreign secretary. What do you think, you know, having observed him so closely, what made him such an effective foreign secretary, do you think? Um, well, I mean, you you know, you should definitely try and interview him on 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 this on this program because uh, well, I think he's coming on. I think oh, good. All right. On. Okay. Well, you you can you can probably ask this. You can you can you should ask this question to him. Um, I mean, from my point of view, one of the things that I think was was so successful for him is not only his enormous intellect, but his ability to balance humour and sincerity to be able to address a point, but also. You know, he was at a point in his life when he became foreign secretary, where he had been leader of the Conservative Party. He had friends within the Conservative Party. There wasn't any threat of him going in any different direction. So he was secure in his place as foreign secretary. He had an idea and a set of objectives about 
what he wanted to do with the Foreign Office, what the role of every ambassador and every embassy was across the world. And he was also at a point where he was trying to rebuild the Foreign Office from the disastrous decisions of of the previous government, um, who decided to get rid of the library and the language schools. And I think William understood the balance of you know, using trade and soft power and the UK's extraordinary diplomatic and intelligence network to maximum effect. And I mean, again, I'm going to be biased about this, but I think he, he, to me, he is one of the most successful foreign secretaries that's been out there because of that sort of incredible balance while also looking at the humanitarian issues that needed to be addressed. And in, in this case, preventing sexual violence and conflict. You know, he always makes this point about saying, you know, as a, it's always very strange for a man to be working on an issue that is intrinsically seen as a woman's issue, but men are ninety nine percent of the problem. We have to be fifty percent of the solution. Absolutely, yeah. I guess it's no surprise, considering you know what you've just told us and your your background, that foreign policy is is a large interest of yours now as an MP, and you've already talked about your work around the ivory trade and also preventing sexual violence and some of the initiatives that you're you know, you're still focusing on this now that you're an elected MP. But the other issue that sort of has become apparent (laughs) that you're very interested in foreign affairs, I guess, is, you know, you were the first, I believe, 2019 MP to raise concerns or at least rebel about Huawei. Um, So tell us a bit more about that. How do you think that might have impacted your, you know, your time as an MP to date and future career and what were your concerns about it? I'm laughing because I don't I don't really know how it's impacted my career. I mean, certainly um, the chief whip obviously raises an eyebrow or two when he sees me walking down a corridor and is, is perhaps questioning which way I'm going to go. Um, but I, I, you know, I listened to your Rory Stewart interview where he was sort of saying he voted against the government early on and he never got a job and all of this side of things. And you know, to be perfectly blunt, I'm okay with that. And um, it seems like a strange thing to say, I'm really. I'm a 31-year-old who is in the enormously fortunate position to be able to represent my constituents. And I want to be able to get to know that, to be able to deliver for them. So I'm not bothered whether or not, you know, voting in a different direction has impacted my career. What I am concerned about is the UK's general direction towards China, or at least I was then in March. You know, it was an extraordinary moment for me because my father had been in army in the army. He had worked in military intelligence. I had grown up with a number of people who worked in military intelligence. I had the first couple of months since being elected, I had spoken to a great many people who were very concerned about the UK's relationship um, with China and the role that Huawei would have in building our telecommunications infrastructure network. And they were talking to me and they were talking to me incredibly candidly. And so when the opportunity came to use a bill, in in this case, the telecommunications infrastructure bill, to vote against government, to make them rethink their position, I was particularly pleased and proud, if I'm allowed to say that, to join 37 other colleagues in the opposition, in the, in, in the, in the corridor against, against the majority of my party. And I'm also cr- incredibly pleased that, you know, the government has changed its position and they are now phasing out Huawei by 2027. But there's, but what what has also increased and has become much more prominent since that vote was the fact that the human, the level of human rights violations being uh, undertaken in China are so much more than we could have ever imagined. You know, we're looking at newspaper articles and images from China that are showing, to all intents and purposes, concentration camps and 
you know, uh, slave labour. Um, and the UK has a duty to address those issues. And so what was perhaps initially concern around intelligence and communications has now become twofold, because it's now about human rights violations and what the UK is actually going to do. And at a point whereby a lot of nations around the world are becoming a lot more fractured, there's a lot more sort of insular, inward-looking approaches, and, and, and definitely a great deal more questioning around international bodies, um, this is a moment that I think the UK and the international community need to stake its reputation on in terms of handling. Mm. Um, and it, it could not be more important to me. So, um, get, sorry, I've got it. I've already got, it's only been 11 months and I've got into the habit of giving long answers to short questions. Um, <laughs> but I think for, for generally from my point of view, I, I don't mind how something like that would have affected my career because I would rather do the right thing than think that I'm just going to get a job because I'm always agreeing with, 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 with my party and with my colleagues. I would like to think that I'm here because I'm doing the right thing in general yeah. while still embodying, embodying the values to which I was elected on. Yeah, well, and clearly, you know, I mean, it's been such a high profile issue. It's clear that you're not, you know, you weren't alone. And uh, yeah, it's obviously the, the government has changed its mind on it since. But where, you know, where do you think the debate is now? Well, I mean, this is where it becomes, I think, more complicated, more nuanced. I mean, there are two very effective groups in the UK. The first is the China Research Group, um, which is headed by Tom Tugendhat. And then there's um, IPAC, the International Parliamentary Alliance on China, which is headed by sort of Ian Duncan Smith and Bob Seeley. And, you know, the, uh, the latter is focused on creating other parliamentary delegations to be able to work together, to be able to exert pressure on China to be able to make sure that we are working together in terms of a essentially a sort of a cooperative movement, as it were, to challenge what's going on um, in, in, in China. And I think that's that e those two are good organizations. Um, the first thing I think is there's a problem we need to actually make sure that they're working together. I don't necessarily often see the overlap and the cooperation that one would expect. Um, and given the people who are involved in both of those groups, it would be more effective for us to be unified in our outlook and our vision and what we're trying to do, because actually the objectives are not all that different. Um, so I, I would hope we might be able to do that and become a little bit more sort of um, rigorous in our approach and united in, in, in doing so. Um, the concern now is, is you know, where do things go? I mean, do, do I, I guess, you know, what happens in November in America is going to have a huge impact in terms of what the international community might feel it is able to do towards China. And, and I think there also has to be a balance as to what we can offer to China in terms of cooperation. You know, China has clearly made a very conscious decision to go uh, to, to, to address climate change with its 2060 target. And they're not doing this just for the sake of themselves. I think they're doing it because they recognize that they have to extend some form of hand or relationship to the international community. So on one hand, I think we need to call out China where they are making the sort of making these sort of decisions with regards to intelligence or whether they are uh, undertaking the most heinous crimes imaginable. Um, and on the other hand, we must look to the areas where we can cooperate. We know that we will not be able to exist in a world without necessarily trading with China, without necessarily having a some sort of relationship. But we haven't found what that relationship is going to be. And it's going to need, I suspect, greater minds than mine working together 
to figure out how that is going to work in the future. Because if it's not addressed, then I think the world as a, as a result will be a great deal poorer for it. And what what would you like to see the Foreign Office to do about this, you know, also publicly? Are you, are you hoping well, that we speak out more? I mean, you've 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 got to. I mean, I think the foreign secretary has done. I mean, Dominic Raab has done an amazing job with this. I mean, you you only need to look at Hong Kong and see how I think I think strong willed he has been, especially with um, passporting rights as well. I think there is. I think we have to be realistic about what we can do, but I also think you know the appetite is there. The relationship which the Australians have with China, okay, is is somewhat different because of their dependence around. Um, China's dependence on Australia's natural resources. But there is a very clear working relationship between the two countries in which one side is able to call out violations and the other side is still able to do that sort of trading relationship. And I think, you know, something like that, which actually leads to the impact of China looking at what it is doing in its own borders and addressing them is is a very necessary requirement. I don't, you know, we, you don't need to look that far back in history and, 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 and to see the impact that, you know, slave labor and concentration camps have had on society as a whole. And I, I don't think anyone post Second World War would have ever thought we would exist in a world where they would, they would exist. Um, so there does need to be greater international cooperation, there does need to be greater um, strategy in dealing with countries that are going to have very poor human rights records. Um, and, and actually, the UK has got a good network to be able to engage those countries, to bring them together, to pull them together, to to allow them to actually discuss and debate, and if necessary, to be to be the leader in that. I don't think that's a completely unambitious, or I don't think it's a, it's impossible to achieve that. Mm. Well, it is fascinating to see how China has become one of the issues that really conservatives from all sides of the party or wings of the party. Are, seem to be coming together on and it's um you know becoming an increasingly more vocal vocal foreign policy area for for the conservatives and it's it's quite a departure from where <laughs> the party was um some time ago well yeah i mean you know that that sort of the golden era right which started in 2014 um which was a it's it kind of amazing to think that only six years ago this was you know this was something that we were actively pursuing and and you know, there's been a, as you say, a massive change of a change of heart over this issue. So, um, I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I think you know, COVID obviously hasn't helped on this issue, um, and it has it has changed things dramatically. But um, I wonder where we would be if COVID hadn't existed. What the what the general approach would be over the human rights violations and intelligence, and whether or not we'd have as much traction. I, my initial thought is that we would. Um, but it's it is something that's going to need to be addressed, and I think a, a new SCDO merger uh, or the new DFID Foreign Office merger may have the right tools to be able to uh, compete with China, but also to hold it to account on many of the issues that we've already discussed. Yeah, well, I was just about to ask you about the merger, um, the new department that's obviously now in existence. It's been it's been created. They have merged. Um, what you know? What is your your view on it? Well, initially, I was pretty, I was pretty concerned about the decision, and um, 
I also recognised that there was very little I would be able to do in terms of of standing up and saying this is this is totally wrong. And I think you know when the government has got its when any government has got its sort of mind set on doing something like this, then it's um, it's not much that one MP can do. And as someone who is particularly interested in things like women's rights, in development, in foreign policy, um, I was pretty in, I'm pretty keen that we can shape how this future this department that's now in existence is going to cooperate and work and and how it's going to be effective on the international stage there's no doubt about it and you will know this as a, a former diff it's bad the uk is a global leader on inter, on international development we have been for so long and the experience of our civil servants and 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 and, and both uh, and past secretaries of state are extraordinary. And so I think the merger poses an opportunity for us. You know, how are we going to make it work? How are we going to retain that experience and that insight into how the UK really leads in international development programs? But what are we going to do to reform? Do we need to do we need to create a multi-year funding program so that the 0.7% isn't just based on a calendar year, but based on a three-year strategy or perhaps a five-year strategy so you can create longer-term goals and ambitions for your development program? Um, Mm. Is there going to be cabinet-level attendance? What scrutiny is there going to be? Is the Independent Commission for Aid Impact going to have oversight over part of the SEDO? You know, I I spoke to Malcolm Rifkin not that long ago because I'm putting a one-nation uh, report together on with Andrew Mitchell and Malcolm Rifkin and Jeremy Hunt on what this merger might do and 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 you know what what does the government need to do and Malcolm Rifkin was I think the last foreign secretary in the foreign office to have the aid budget in the FCO and um, that was a very interesting insight because he had Linda Chalker who was a brilliant development minister and who had international recognition you need to have a second in command in the now FCDO to yeah. ensure that development is still internationally recognised as something that UK does well and effectively. Um, and I think that's something we really need to be able to address early on to align any fears um, that people have that we are not going to still be as determined on the international stage to help those um, who are facing conflict or poverty or famine or disease and all of these things. Mm. But I mean, yeah, we've got a long way to go on that. And interestingly, a lot of the issues, I'm saying that not to say that these are exclusively the issues that you are passionate about and want to campaign on, but a number of the issues that we have discussed today, you know, just, just now, uh, whether it's you know fighting ivory trade or preventing sexual violence, have actually sat in the Foreign Office um, and obviously working very closely with DFID. But actually, it sort of shows how a lot of these, you know, there, there was already a lot of collaboration on these issues across departments. And I, I agree that merging it, there is huge potential to make it more joined up and um you know work more effectively in, in a way so i and i also totally agree with um, the need for a second in command or at least having someone very senior mm. attending those those conferences because you know foreign secretaries as you know having worked for one you know they, they already have to travel so much and can only be in so many places uh, a year so to not have british voices uh, represented at a high level development yeah. conferences would be would be a huge shame um one of the things that the uk did this year which was very high profile uh, you know britain hosted the replenishment for gavi 
and actually committed £330 million per year, I think it was, to the Vaccine Alliance, which is is Gavi. And um, I know that vaccines are have been a big focus of yours, not least obviously because of COVID, but uh, also due to uh, the local picture in your your constituency. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, this is something that I I wasn't a, totally aware of um, until I actually got elected. But I'd heard sort of mumblings and rumours that you know down in South Devon, I think we've got one of the lower rates of vaccination in the country, and in some cases there are countries um, that have got. Around the world, that have got significantly higher rates of vaccinations than than my own constituency, and that to me is really, really concerning. It's something that, you know, in in the twenty first century, it is not acceptable for people to say, well, you know, to to come up with, I think, fairly bizarre conspiracy theories to suggest that the government is trying to drug everyone, um, and therefore they're not going to take a vaccination because it's not just your own life; it's the the people around you whose lives you are endangering. Um, so actually, very early on, when since being elected, I got involved with the, the one campaign that is obviously working with Gavi, and there are some few of a few of the people who work for the one campaign are um, based in my constituency. I've been talking to them about what we can do to be able to encourage UK government to continue its incredible program around the world, which has saved millions of people um, from disease, death, infection, um, to continue that program to help you know the advances that we have made over so many decades um so it's been it's been a really extraordinary insight to me because i've been talking about you know what can we do over in you know in africa in in the developing you know in developing countries what can we do to help them but at the same time i've got this problem whereby you know over covid i go down i've been walking down a high street the other day and i saw people putting up signs to say that they that we shouldn't be taking the vaccine and it's all a conspiracy you know it's it's a really difficult thing to get your head around um, when I'm going out saying this is what we should do in my own constituency there are some members in it it's not the vast majority it's not even a majority but there are a, a number of people who are going around saying no to vaccines it's very hard to make uh, to make the argument again well it's very hard to um, to comprehend what that does when you're trying to argue it on the international stage that's that is really interesting and it's not something yeah you, you'd expect at all it seems quite counterintuitive. well yeah I mean you could be um, you could be a bit more blunt about it but um, yeah it's very very tricky and actually I think you've got to encourage people and that I think also starts with education and it starts with making sure that people are aware of the full facts and um, you know that's going to be my job and other people's jobs to to start articulating in a way that people are reassured um, and that is the challenge but you're you know you're really you know you know this from your experience within within DFID but um, you know the UK's commitment to vaccinations on the international stage have had just the most incredible impact it's something that we should all be rightly proud of and something I hope you know in future years people will recognize as 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 one of the things that the UK has been instrumental in doing and 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 a, and a global leader on and just finally on this, Anthony, what do you think the UK can do on the international stage that is going to show its commitment to international development or, you know, its continued commitment to international development? Well, you know, it's it's already got a very good track record of delivering across the world. Um, 
But I think we need to be a little bit more ambitious. We've merged these departments. I think we need to show the international community that we are still going to be forward thinking and acting in our manner around international development. So, you know, my my belief is that the UK should put itself forward, creating a new international development alliance. We could start this with Canada, Australia and New Zealand, um, where we come together, identify some common goals in similar areas uh, around the world and basically join up our development programs to address that issue in that particular place. Um, Not only do I think that would be valuable to them, but I think it would give us the opportunity to show that the international community's response and desire to continue international development programs is still there. But I think it would be more effective. I think the outcomes would be more effective. And I think the collaboration and cooperation with those three other countries and ourselves would basically give us the ability to learn better practices, but also to be able to be, I think, more efficient in the way in which we tackle the issues that are so endemic in today's society. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to find out a bit more about what how you're finding life as a constituency MP. And um, I know you mentioned you were out on sea yesterday with the local fishermen and I also have been following you know your campaign earlier this um this year about you know trying to support uh tourism and in particular you know you called on uh, I think you led the campaign to reduce the rate of VAT on tourism to five percent yeah yeah which is well you know that's a great accomplishment so so early on um yeah, what what is it like, uh, you know, spending your Saturday mornings with fishermen? And I mean, you're very, you have a beautiful seat. Yeah. I do. I'm, I'm allowed to say this. I mean, I said it during my maiden speech. It's great. You know, when you stand up and give your maiden speech, everyone turns around and goes, my constituency is the most beautiful. Um, but I know that when I stood up and said, you know, I am fortunate enough to re- represent the most beautiful constituency in the house, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in, in the whole country, I was I was actually telling the truth because I know some of my <laughs> colleagues in the Midlands just don't believe it. Um, so um, but I'm you know, I love it. I mean, it's someone asked me yesterday. I, you, you, as you just said, I was out yesterday morning um, with some of my fishermen um, listening to how COVID's impacted them and, you know, what their markets are looking like and all of this side of things. And someone said, you know, are you enjoying it? And it has been an extraordinary baptism of fire. But the very best thing about doing this job is the constituency work, not least because you can have immediate impact, I hope in a positive and meaningful way. But, you know, that is the immediate thing that you can help change in your life or in your constituency. You can add weight to an issue, whether it be tourism and hospitality, and get 84, 85 colleagues to support your call for a cut down to 5%, um, which has made a huge difference to all those businesses that are in hospitality and tourism in in my constituency. Or you can help extend a bus route or you, you know, and it's, it's the, it's the thing you do in this life that's probably in this job that is the quickest to respond to the work you do, if you see what I mean. It reacts most sort of, uh, I don't know what the word is, most sort of expediently. Um, is Is that a word? Probably don't quote it me is, on this, yeah. but expediently, yes. Um, but, you know, in that sense, so it's, it's very satisfying being able to come down on a Wednesday night or a Thursday morning and spend three and a half days, because I'm still 
generally working all through my weekends at the moment um, to help people who you know have who have got a whole manner of different issues. So I absolutely love it, um, and I also find that you know when you spend even longer than the three and a half days each week in your constituency and you spend recess in a, in your constituency, you get armed up with all the issues you can take back to Westminster to fight on. So this, you know, I, I'm doing a debate in the not too distant future on the RNLI and independent lifeboats because they are a frontline emergency service with the rise of domestic tourism. They've been really busy over the summer. And as a result, I'm able to take the experience of talking to my independent lifeboat station in Hope Cove up to Westminster and say, isn't it amazing what they're doing? Have we considered maybe reimbursing them for the cost of the durable PPE that they have had to buy? Um, and I, you know, I for one love that. I find it, I find it intoxicating. It's, it's incredibly satisfying, gratifying, um, and something that I hope is, is achieving meaningful results. And how have you seen your community respond to COVID and what are the lessons that you think there are to learn from this this period? Well, I mean, I don't obviously no one expected to be in the situation that we are in, but the way in which the community in South Devon has responded has been extraordinary from the caring groups to the village shops to, um, you know, the the bus drivers. It's been incredible. You know, neighbours have gone out of their way to help one another to do food parcels and to help support people and it's it's been quite interesting because I think what we've suddenly seen is what maybe the big society always tried to do the big society tried to make this issue a fit or tried to make those networks sort of official and yet at a time of crisis they came into fruition they came into existence in a much more pronounced way and for me the lesson that I take away from that is that we need to find a way in which we can support those community structures without trying to overtake them or, or take or you know rule them or anything like that we need to find the soft approach in which we can make sure that that sort of caring group network that I and I've got one in every major town in my constituency is maintained in the future because their knowledge and their insight and their understanding of the local needs is so important I mean one of the one of the biggest gripes I have is that you know, we have cottage hospital, or we did have a cottage hospital in Dartmouth, and it got closed because they're saying not enough people were using it, and it was more efficient to treat people 20 miles away in a hospital in Torbay. Um, and yet, for all the efficiency and cost-saving exercises that the trust did in that scenario, it would never have, it, it could never have dealt with a situation like this. And so, of course, the minute COVID came about, they had to find beds in Dartmouth, in this case, uh, to be able to look after its residents. So I think from my point of view, you take all the positives of those networks coming to fruition, of binding stronger together, of people using their local community in a in a more cohesive way, and you get the government to be able to support it in a sort of, in a gentle and backseat approach. Um, and then you have to drive the localism point, which is, you know, shop local, think local, live local, obviously. Um, we've got so many people that have now moved out of London because they want to come down and work here. We need to be able to enhance that and give people the opportunity to be able to 
use that local infrastructure network, buy from their local butchers and fishmongers, use the produce that is in the immediate vicinity to them so that we can strengthen those communities. And it is already happening. I mean, you know, you go to you go to the farmer's market now and you see more people than you've ever seen before. And I think that's something that we're learning these lessons and we're seeing actually this isn't about government dictating or creating policy to do it. It's just about that gentle approach and that sort of that that support in a in a in a meaningful way. That's really interesting. And um, before I forget, you know, we have to talk about an object. And I know this is a really tricky question, but is there an object that you think has um, that you'd say is um, has had some sort of impact in in a way? I yeah I mean it's got to be so I'm I'm I am mildly dyslexic and um, I don't actually I never I never really sort of talk about that but I and, and I guess it's probably probably because I, I'm not embarrassed about it at all it's just something that I've always worked on and I remember aged six I had an extra English teacher who said to me you know you're you're gonna just have to work that little bit harder and you're gonna have to spend that little bit more time you know, working on your essays and writing things out in a, you know, constantly. And, you know, your handwriting's terrible. I think all my constituents who have ever received a letter from me probably agree with that. Um, so, I mean, my object, if anything, has got to be a fountain pen. Um, you know, I write all of my speeches when I do a, you know, a proper speech. I, I write it by fountain pen. I sat up until one o'clock last night writing a speech um, with a fountain pen because, it slows you down. It makes you think about the words you are using. Um, and it's the only thing that probably makes my handwriting legible in the first place. But wherever I've gone, wherever I've been in the world, I've always had my fountain pen. And added to which, I write letters. And I write probably 30 to 40 letters a week. By I, I send out a great deal by, you know, obviously through my constituency officer, which you sign. But I write 30 to 40 handwritten letters a week. And I don't know, somewhere in the somewhere at the bottom of me, I think it doesn't matter where you are in the world, what you're doing, who you are, there is nothing better than receiving a letter. And no one should and I think Christopher Hitchens made this point in one of his books, which is that you should never underestimate the positive impact that sending a letter will have on mm. someone. And I write to people. I, you know, I read the local papers and see people doing interesting things and I write to them. And I I love that. I love that ability to be able to sit down and write something nice to someone and and to you know give them my sort of my thoughts on things or or to thank them for something it's yeah so definitely a fountain pen although that sounds like you're about to sort of cast me away to a desert island disc and that's my luxury because if you're (laughs) saying that that's my luxury I'm afraid it's got to be a fully stocked bar or something along those lines (laughs) fair enough fair enough and so yeah I'll finish off with some quick fire questions uh and uh I joke every every week now that they are really not they tend not to be very quick (laughs) but uh, I'm just going to stick to the terminology is that is that dependent is that dependent on the answers that your your interviewees give or uh or on the questions you're asking in terms of the speed of response to be fair it is certainly a combination uh (laughs) if if it was truly quick fire I'd ask ask a closed question but that is certainly not what I do but um one of the questions I I asked uh originally and I like actually it's sort of become a a staple for all the interviews I do with with MPs and politicians is to ask who their favourite politician is from the opposite party or you know at least not from their own party so you know who you know who is your favourite non-conservative politician? I mean do you mean in historical terms or do you mean today? Yeah it, it can be either. 
Okay, fine. Well, I th- I think it's. I mean, to be honest, I'm I'm incredibly privileged to be able to get to work with Sarah Champion, and you know, she has been chair of the International Development Committee, and she has been just incredibly supportive and kind about some of the work I'm doing around preventing sexual violence in conflict, um, as well as the work we're doing on. Um, international development as well and I think she is an incredibly um, insightful courageous brilliant individual who I feel incredibly privileged to be able to sit in the same chamber as let alone be able to speak to so um, yeah I really really enjoy working with her. Mm. And what would you say your biggest bugbear is in politics? Oh way too much waiting around you know I think (laughs) you know you spend far too long waiting I mean I'm actually, I'm a traditionalist about how Parliament operates. I like the fact that you have to turn up in a voting corridor. I like that you have to do all of that side of things. But um, you spend way too long waiting around for votes in between votes, all of this sort of stuff. And um, I do, that that frustrates me because, you know, that is time, time wasted. But then again, you, you know, you have to, you have to find the balance. Not everything is going to get done in a single day. And remembering that also does slightly sort of calm you down and I'm very enthusiastic and energetic about these things so maybe I need to slow down (laughs) and um, if there was one piece of legislation that you could introduce right now what what would it be I mean there are so many that I would probably look at trying to do I mean the first is I would want to update the ivory act um, and that would be to, I mean, this isn't in any order, actually, but uh, the first would be to update Ivory Act to include other things than elephant ivory. So narwhal tusks and uh, warthog tusks as well should be included in hippo's teeth. Um, I would really like to see the updating of the Modern Slavery Act to see how we can use it to prevent the UK ever engaging with companies that have um, reported connections to the slave trade. Um And then I would also like to do stuff around the constituency side of things. You know, one of the biggest problems I've had is the government's generosity. And this is a sort of oversight rather than active thing is is around business rates for second homeowners. Um, If you let out your home for a period of time, you you can be eligible for business rates. And I I think that's slightly unacceptable. Um, so yeah, there are there are three quick things I'd like to legislate. Yeah, very good. Oh, and and park homes exactly. Uh, park home residents don't have uh, don't have enough support. So that's something I am working on, which I never thought I would be working on at all. But I, you know, I got called up by a group in my constituency. I came to see them. I was pretty horrified to see the maintenance of their sites was in was in was in poor repair. Oh, sorry, the site was in poor repair. And um, yeah, that's been a real source of frustration, but something that is really valuable and really important to them. Mm, interesting. Yeah. And um, what would you say the best piece of advice is that you've ever been given? <laughs> I, I don't do it. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's, <laughs> I, de- I definitely don't agree that. I, I mean, um, that's definitely been said to me a lot. Why on earth would you do it? Um I, you know, it's a bit cheesy to say it, but be kind, be patient. Um, you know, people, people have got all sorts of things going on in their lives. And um, you, we are as MPs in a remarkable position, and we can affect change, and we can help people. And while it is stressful, not everyone is thinking about politics as much as we are. And uh, that was that was a good reminder. And I think just making sure that you can remember to be patient and kind with people in all sorts of environments and 
that's probably going to stand you in pretty good stead. Mm. Oh, and also you've got to, you do have to have, you've got to be able to laugh even at the sort of even at the worst times. I mean, I remember campaigning in 2017. I was I was given one of those. I was given a seat where I had to cut my teeth. I had no chance of winning, and this was in in Warley, and I was against the great John Speller. And the first door I knocked on, someone opened the door and he said, the last Conservative to knock on my door was Enoch Powell. And so that kind of gave me a sense of the fact that I was not going to have a very easy time of knocking on doors. And actually, unfailingly, the people of Wally were incredibly kind and generous and all of them heard me out, um, but none of them voted for me. So um, maybe it's a sort of good lesson. Um, but then you then you fast forward to the 2019 election. And you get a sort of scenario whereby I think my result came in at 3.21 in the morning. And at 3.23, I got an email from a constituent saying, Dear Mr. Magdal, I thought I'd let you settle into becoming a member of parliament before disturbing you. I have this issue. And I, you know, <laughs> two minutes into the job and I've got my first email. And the thing is, I don't think he expected me to respond at 2.45 and then address the issue the next day and get it sorted. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think you have to you have to laugh at those moments, but you also have to, yeah, take take the um, take that sort of passion to to help people and, and and get on with it yeah that's great and then let's let's finish off with a cheeky question what would you say is your guilty pleasure I thought you were going to ask me what's my naughtiest moment and I was sort of suddenly <laughs> thinking you know I firstly I can't answer that and I haven't run through fields of wheat what's my guilty pleasure oh I mean um oh it's definitely got to be a dirty vodka martini oh I think you know that is that that you know that would that does it for me at the end of the week. Very good, very nice, very nice. What's yours, Laura? Not... <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely cutting this out. <laughs> so no, uh... you're not. You can't cut this. Out. You've got to keep this in. People need to know the interviewer as much as the interviewee. Come on. I honestly don't know. Um, actually, <laughs> if we're going down the cocktail route, I mean, mine is definitely a margarita. I do love a margarita. Right. A lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that makes the next interview easier. We'll just do it over margaritas and and and, and martinis. Exactly. Well, that that would that would make for a cracking interview. And um, <laughs> yeah, no, that that's I'll, I'll I'll hold you to that. Anthony, thank you so much for for joining. Um, what were you thinking? It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please subscribe, leave a review and share the word. And as many of you will know, there are certain questions that I love asking at the end. You know, like, what is your favourite MP from a different political party? What is the best advice you've ever been given? And what is your guilty pleasure? So I'd love to hear what the answers are for you. So please get in touch either on Twitter uh, you can use the hashtag what were you thinking or tag me at Laura Round or you can email me via podcast at bigtent.org.uk. And also don't forget to become a friend of Big Tent using the discount code podcast, which gives you access to all their events and private meetings and all their content online. Visit bigtent.org.uk.